I don't know if this is going to be worth it or if this speaks to anyone, but I, I did feel compelled to say something this morning um, just because, yeah, and so I'm just going to listen to that. So if this doesn't apply to anyone here, that's fine, but I'm going to say it. Um, I wanted to get a, give a bit of a warning this morning. Um, yeah, you guys just heard the passage. Um, it's not like Dave gave me a layup passage to preach, right? Um, cool, let's talk about hating your children. Um, you're, you're probably aware that this is a highly, highly challenging passage. So I wanted to say this. Some of you in the past have been highly challenged to follow Jesus, right? And as a result, you threw yourself into what you thought that looked like. Uh, you followed that person who challenged you. You gave your all to that church, to that ministry. You volunteered. You shared your faith. You did everything they asked of you. And a lot of things they didn't, thinking this is the way to live radically for Jesus. And a lot of those things were probably actually good things, right? Um, but then it turns out that the person who asked you to do this or the church that asked you to do this was spiritually manipulative, right? Um, or maybe that person didn't believe that black lives matter. Or maybe even they... they you find out that they sexually abused someone, right? You were betrayed. You look up to that person, you looked up to that church, that ministry, and they let you down. Hard. And even years later, it continues to be hard. So sermons like this can be triggering, right? Uh, highly, highly challenging things. And, and, I, and I do believe, like we're talking about Jesus' words. Jesus was a very challenging person, but he was challenging to particular types of people, right? And so a sermon cannot necessarily capture um, the experience of each one of you. And so I just thought it was worth saying this. Um, it wells in you a stress because it takes you back to maybe that betrayal, that, that pain, that trauma. And so I say all this to say that I see you, um, or rather I want to see you and hear you better, right? And more importantly, though, God sees you. Do what you need to do this morning for sure. And I just wanted to urge you to continue to, outside of these walls, address the trauma through whatever means necessary, through through therapy, community, whatever you need. Um, and, and I plead this uh, with you for this because your healing is vital to seeing Jesus rightly, right? So with that, I'm gonna jump in if you guys are okay. Um, and again, maybe that doesn't apply to anyone, but just felt compelled to say it. At all times, I believe that we are worshiping something or someone, right? We were made to worship. God created us to worship. So something must fill that place of worship within us. Another way to put it, something must be at the center of our lives, on the pedestal above all else. I believe that our attention and our affection is fixed upon something at all times. I know this is the beginning of pandemic times, but how many of you watched The Last Dance, the uh, Michael Jordan documentary? Like seven of you? Okay, um, cool. We just live in Chicago. No, but, no. Um, so the last dance was the Michael Jordan documentary. Um, and it, it like really, obviously it was a little bit of, I'm a huge Michael Jordan fan, but it was still a little bit of a fluff piece. Like he was the one who produced it, right? So we can, we can admit that. Um, but it did, I think, capture the essence of Michael Jordan. Uh, what, what was at the center of Michael Jordan's life? What drove him? Basketball, but more particularly, winning basketball, right? He actually, like, I don't think he, I think if he was good at other things, he would, he would find ways to win those things, right? Um, and he did. He, he was an avid gambler. <laughs> uh, and he would even, like, take money from his friends, like, incessantly, because he just was obsessed with winning. And basketball was what he was good at, so he was, he was obsessed with winning basketball. 
Winning was Michael Jordan's God, right? It was his object of worship. It's what dictated what he circled his life around. I actually looked for some quotes from Michael Jordan about winning, and all of his quotes are like, ah, if you try really hard, that's what's most important. But I actually don't believe any, that he believed any of those things, right? I don't think that he would have just stopped at like, oh, it's okay to try hard. Like, he was mean to his teammates, right? He punched Steve Kerr, is that right? He punched somebody, Steve Kerr, I think. Um, And it was all because he cared about winning. He didn't care about trying hard. He cared about winning, right? Winning was at the center of Michael Jordan's life. And again, it dictated what he did, like punching Steve Kerr. That is because our motivations, our actions, our words will flow from what we currently have at the center of our lives. In other words, what we worship will disciple us and determine how we live our lives. When our attention is fully on something, we will begin to model our lives after that thing. And so I am certain as a result that what we worship, what is at the center of our lives, what our affection is on, is a matter of life and death. So this morning, we're going to dive into Luke 20, uh, 14, 25 to 33. Uh, and I have tagged this uh, text, The Cost of Discipleship. So before I jump into the text, let me go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. Uh, we do thank you for the last dance. It was pretty good. Um, and a and, uh, good an analogy. Uh, Lord, we just pray this morning that our focus, our attention, our affection are on you, Lord. I pray for those uh, who have a hard time doing that, Lord. I just pray, uh, even if we don't want it, that we want to want it, Lord. Um, and so, yeah, I just pray that I, this morning, tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, Lord. Uh, that it's your words, not mine, your glory, not mine. In your sin's name I pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, I have the passage up here, but this is a pretty interesting passage, right? I've already alluded to this. Uh, Jesus is saying, if you do not hate your father and mother, hate your wife and kids, hate your brothers and sisters, even hate uh, your life itself, then you cannot be my disciple. Um, So right out the gate, we're getting a little weird. And so what I wanted to do was uh, when, when Dave asked me to preach this passage, I was like, okay, let's look at this passage and consider um, what he could even be, what Jesus could mean here, right? Because in other parts of the Bible, you have passages that'll say, honor your parents, right? Uh, love your wife uh, as you love yourself, right? What's the second commandment? To love others as you love yourself, right? And so there seems to be a little bit of a contradiction here. And so I took two paths initially. I was like, okay, let's look at the word hate in the Greek, right? Um, That's a really, really easy way to just be like, maybe our translations got it wrong. And so I looked at the word. The word the Greek uses uh, is miseo, which is not misio. It's one S um, short. It's M-I-S-E-O. You're not going to church. That means hate God. Um, So I I take the word miseo, and it's like, what's the root word? How else is it used in the Bible? So Maseo is actually used for the word hate. In fact, it's the same word used in the passage. You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, right? So no skirting around this one. The original meaning is pretty accurate. It means hate. So that was a dead end. So then next, I was like, well, let's then consider the cultural context that Jesus was in, right? And maybe then we can understand this a bit better. Maybe somehow it was good and normal to 
hate your family back then. I don't know. Um, so I wanted to look at it. The main thing to understand is that about their culture was that the nuclear family uh, living in one household was not the norm, right? Um, so just married couples and their kids didn't necessarily have their own places. See, houses, much like in other cultures outside of America today, would be multi-generational, right? You would live with the grandparents. You would live with your grandkids. You guys understand the idea of multi-generational. I don't know why I'm explaining it. Um, an example of this. So I went to, after my junior year at Northwestern, um, I went to Niger, West Africa. Um, so it's just north of Nigeria. It's like here in Africa. Um, and I worked in this hospital in the middle of the desert. Uh, that uh, was planted by a Christian ministry called SIM. Um, while there, I met a lot of incredible people, uh, most of them Niger natives, uh, who followed Jesus and wanted to tell me about it. So I have a picture, I think, of my friend Salifu. Um, he would tell me incredible stories of his relationship with Jesus. See, Niger is about 90% or 95% Muslim. Um, and while they are very friendly people, and they're very, very friendly and accepting of people of other religious backgrounds, they would often see Christianity as an other person's, an other country's uh, religion, right? They uh, would not necessarily see it for themselves or for their own people. So if a Nigerian converted to Christianity, they would be seen as betraying their own people, right? So Salifu was telling me about how he and his wife when they were public when they're, with their conversions to Christianity, at age 30, they were both kicked out of their parents' households. So at first, him telling me this didn't like, hit me as hard. I'm like, okay, uh, like 30, there, there's a reality that maybe like, you can land on your own feet, right? But I was so trapped in my own cultural understanding of the world. This is not typical where he was at. Houses were multi-generational, and to be kicked out of your house was devastating financially, reputationally, and otherwise. So I say all this to say that um, culturally, people in Jesus' time were probably very similar. similar. Multi-generational houses in a culture that depends on familial relationships, right? So as a result, when Jesus is telling people to hate their mothers and fathers, their siblings, this is actually a far stronger challenge than it would, might even be to us today right? Their livelihoods depended on their extended families. So again, we are not able to skirt around the words of Jesus here, right? So now what? Well, one thing we can for sure confirm from the text is based on what Jesus says following the ideas of hating um, everyone who loves you. Um, what follows is two stories of someone not considering the cost before they do something, right? So Jesus, in telling them the people, that if they want to follow them, they must hate their families. And I'm sorry, these do not translate well. I did make these enormous, and this is like, yeah, there's no chance. I can't read that from here, so I don't know how some of you in the back could. Um, so these are the stories. I'll, 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 I'll say them again. Essentially, uh, a man is building a tower, and he has to stop halfway through because he does not count the cost of that tower, right? Um, and then there's a king that wants to go with another uh, war against another king, but it says, like, the king would be foolish not to consider how many people he has versus how many people um, he would be going against, right? So if he has 10,000 and, and not 20,000, uh, he would count the cost before he went to war, right? And so Jesus is obviously pointing to us um, 
in, in some ways, we need to count the cost, right? So I think, let me say this again, Jesus in telling the people that if they want to follow him, that they must hate their families and themselves, is calling them to the cost of what, of what it might cost to follow him, the cost of discipleship. Now, I will say this, and initially hearing this, it doesn't really inspire me to follow Jesus, right? N.T. Wright, who's a scholar, puts it this way. He says, suppose that a politician is in front of a crowd. Uh, this might actually sound familiar in our current context. No, I'm kidding. Um, and he says, if you're going to vote for me, you're voting to lose your homes and families. You're asking for higher taxes and lower wages. You're deciding in favor of losing all you love uh, the most. So come on, who's on my side, right? Like, that is not very enticing, not very compelling, right? But, N.T. Wright continues, suppose the situation is there's a leader of a great expedition who's forging his way through a treacherous mountain in order to bring urgent medical care to villagers who are unable to get it from the rest of the world. And that leader says, before you come with me, know that the path is dangerous. You might have to leave much of what you currently have on you even behind. Leave your bags, leave the food. Some of you might die so that you might leave your family behind as a result. But I want, to, I want you to help me save these people. See, the ask is the same, right? To potentially leave all you have or leave the things you love, but the context of the ask is far different. I think this is partially what Jesus is getting at. Following me may cost you some relationships, right? Later on, he says, leave everything you have and follow me, right? What did he tell the rich young ruler? Sell all of your possessions, right? And follow me. You must consider this before you follow me. Again, N.T. Wright says this in response to Jesus telling, in Jesus telling us to leave it all. Many of Jesus's followers then and now have owned houses and lands and have not felt compelled to abandon them. But being prepared to do so is a sign that one has understood the seriousness of the call to follow Jesus, right? See, my friend Salifu, he considered that cost. He knew it might cost him his family, his security, when he began following Jesus. And he was right. It did cost him that. But he had considered the cost and considered it was worth it. Now, I do believe that this, this is a lot of what Jesus is saying in this passage, right? That that following him is incredibly serious. But I do think that there's some actual applicable, tangible meaning and application here for us today. And it circles back to what I said in the uh, introduction, that at all times we are worshiping something or someone, right? And again, I believe, I'm going to hit it again, I believe this is because God created us uh, to need to worship something or someone Ultimately, because it is for our good that we worship him, right? So I quickly want to define what we mean by worship. Um, worship is singing songs, right? But worship is, is a lot more than that. I feel like singing songs, um, you guys all know this. I already know, but I'm still going to say it. Um, kind of bringing praise publicly to Jesus is, is not necessarily the worship, but it's the expression of the worship of our hearts, Right? It's a way to express our worship to God. Where do your affections lie? That's what you're worshiping. What are you captured by? 
What takes up your brain space? If you lost it, what would devastate you, right? Not, I, I, and I should say this, like, if I lost my family, that would devastate me, right? But, but what is something where it's just like life would end, right, if you didn't have it? That's what you're worshiping. An idea I often think about is from Indiana Jones. Um, I'm sure some of you at least know the scene where Indiana is trying to steal this treasure, right? And in place of it, he places just like a, a, a weighted bag so that he doesn't set off the booby traps, right? See, something always has to exist in that spot in order for the booby trap to not be set off, right? And so what Indiana is doing is he's taking the treasure and replacing it with a weighted bag. And I think in the same way, we have a need to worship. If we do not have God in that place, we, we have to put something in its place, right? This means that even when we are not cognizant of what we are worshiping, we are worshiping something. So I believe when Jesus was calling out hating these particular family members, I believe he was calling out the people in our lives that will typically take the rightful place of Jesus. So what I'm going to do with the rest of our time is look at just a couple of these that Jesus calls out and maybe how they potentially play out today. So we can just begin to consider like, is this true of me? The first one is our spousal relationship. Now, as you may or may not know, I have a picture over here. Um, I am married. I know this gives hope to people everywhere. Um, why are you guys laughing? Do you agree? I'm just kidding. Um, my wife, Jamie, and I have been married for six years at this point. Uh, actually, a little bit over. Hold your applause. And I'd venture to say things are going pretty, pretty well, right? In fact, I do not hate her. Um, However, when I love Jesus, or when I love Jamie, like I'm supposed to love Jesus, when I put Jamie as the object of the heart of, of worship of my heart, it actually seems counterintuitive, but our marriage is far worse off. Why? Jamie cannot save me. She's great, but she cannot save me. And so for me to expect her to be my savior is far too great an expectation. She will disappoint me every time when I love her like I'm supposed to love my Savior. She cannot carry the weight of my sin and reconcile me to God, right? She can and does point me to God, but she is not God. She cannot be my Savior. I am not being fair to Jamie when I do this, when I heap the expectations of my Savior onto her, right? I'm not loving Jamie in the way I'm supposed to love her. Uh, the second area is kids, right? I think very similarly with our kids. Um, and I think this one is a little bit more obvious just based on like TV writing. Um, you know, there's like the trope of like the high school quarterback whose dad is way too hard on him, right? Um, but when we put our kids as the object of our worship, I think that usually plays out by heaping unfair expectations on them. We want them to experience their best lives. We believe we are responsible for making sure they are perfect and have the perfect experiences, right? And yet, in placing them at the center of our lives, we either push them further away from us or we create people who will never be honest with us because they aren't allowed to disappoint us or fall short of our expectations and view of them. And then the final area for all you folks who are unmarried and don't have kids, you're not off the hook. Uh, this is for all of us. 
The one that I think is most often my temptation is ourselves, uh, to put ourselves at the center of everything. Uh, my favorite poem uh, is one titled Ozymandias. Now, it's a well-known poem that things like Watchmen and Breaking Bad reference. Um, and I'm not going to sit here and read the whole thing, but I do want to sort of explain it to you so you can understand what I'm saying. See, there's a traveler who tells of a statue that he comes across in the middle of the desert. And this statue is broken into pieces all throughout the sand, right? And then the traveler, he sees that they're um, at the feet, there's an inscription on the base. And this is what the inscription says. It says, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. You see, the irony, irony is that the statue was probably a large statue standing in the middle of a city center, right? Uh, in the center of the capital of a sprawling region led by a king named Ozymandias. But what remained of that? What remained of his kingdom? Nothing, right? In fact, the author puts it this way. Nothing besides remained. Round the decay of the colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. What he's saying is there's nothing there, right? The author draws attention to the difference between the big claim by Ozymandias, look on my works, ye mighty, and despair, and the reality that nothing was there. See, Ozymandias had put himself in the center of his life. He had focused on building up his own kingdom. And church, let me tell you, there's only one kingdom that lasts. And it ain't Ozymandias's, and it's not ours, right? See, I think we're a little bit more subtle, right? I don't know about you, but I don't have any statues of myself in my yard that says, look on my, my works, my you know, little plot of land, ye mighty, and despair. And if you're anything like me, and I know I am, it is a moment by moment, some of you caught that, you'll get on the way home. Um, it is a moment by moment struggle, right? I want to worship me, my comfort, my security, my reputation. I want to protect those things because I am turned so inward, right? And, and hear me say this. This is not uh, against therapy. This is not against healing. This is not against things like that, right? There are realities where we need to heal. We need to grow. We need to focus on some things in our own lives. So these are not uh, against each other. These, these are aligned with, another, with one another, I believe. Take the time to rest, to heal, to be whole. Do those things and do them with Jesus in the center. So then what next, right? We can sit here and play out how this might play out over and over, but you get the point, right? We put something else in the center of our lives and it's just bound to disappoint. It's bound to fall short. And if we're lucky enough, we'll notice that it falls short, right? I think if, if we get God's grace, we see that it does not fill uh, what Jesus is intended to fill. So I want to say this, because I feel like a lot of this has been, don't do this, don't do that, which is fine. We need directives. But Christianity is different than other religions because it doesn't just hold you to a list of do's and don'ts, but it gives you something tangibly to replace those don'ts with. In other words, we need to put Jesus back in the rightful place of our lives. Blaise Pascal, who's a famous mathematician, said it this way. There's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ. Yeah, this looks like the like warning labels. I'm so sorry, guys. I should have said it on like three times speed. 
may cause death. Um, St. Augustine, uh, who was from, he's a saint from North Africa, he said it this way. Uh, you made us for yourself, and our fi- hearts find no peace till they rest in you. You see, we were talking about counting the cost, but you don't pay for something that isn't worth it, right? So we must see and remember that Jesus is worth counting the cost for. In what ways? See, Jesus can call us to count the cost of following him because he has already considered the cost of calling us to him in the first place. Jesus saw the price of our reconciliation back to himself because of our sin was death. And Jesus paid for that cost. Jesus saw that we could not do it if he did not count the cost himself. So Jesus counted and he paid that cost. Jesus has ransomed us from death. It has no hold on us. So Jesus calls us to follow him, to count the cost, because he has already done the work necessary for us to even be able to hear him. I can tell you from my own experience, and I'm sure many in this room could, when Jesus is at the center of my life, life is better. It just is. So how do we do that? What does that look like? How do we put Jesus in his rightful place? I honestly think we just need to ask and then assume it's true. I love St. Augustine, so I'm going to quote him one more time. He says this. He says, How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place, O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. Do you hear that? He is saying he, he wanted Jesus back in his place, but Jesus was the one who drove those other things out and did it for him. All we have to do is ask. And I, and I want to say this. I said this sort of when I was praying. There are a lot of times where I don't necessarily want this, right? But I do want to want this at all times, right? And so maybe you're at that place where you're just like, I don't, I don't want this. But I, I just urge you to want to want it, right? It is so worth it. Spend time with Jesus. Consider his beauty. Consider who he is and what he has done for us. And slowly but surely, I believe you'll begin to see him for who he is and put him in his rightful place in your life.